Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello and welcome to Running Mates, a podcast for Brits about the US election. In today's episode, how on earth is a presidential race still a contest between two men? My social security payroll contribution will go up, as will Donald's, assuming he can't figure out how to get out of it. Uh, but what we want to do is to replenish the Such social a security nasty trust woman. fund by making... That's Donald Trump debating Hillary Clinton last time round. It came during an election campaign marked by Trump's unabashed sexism. Instead of damaging his chances, it helped him to win. In 2020, he's at it again. And I thought she was the meanest, uh, the, the most horrible, most disrespectful of anybody in the US Senate. Now the target is Kamala Harris, the Democrat vice presidential nominee who is facing the same attacks that Clinton did, sometimes literally from the Republican Party and online trolls. She was probably nastier than even Pocahontas to Joe Biden. Nasty, mean, horrible. Oh, and note Trump's casual racism towards another high-profile woman in politics. One-time Democratic presidential contender Elizabeth Warren and the controversy surrounding her Native American heritage. So why is the deck still so stacked against female politicians in the US? when other countries have been led by women for decades? Will there ever be a female president when America punishes women for traits that voters accept or even like in male politicians? Hello, my name's Graham Dominic from HuffPost UK team and joining me today are two of my colleagues from the US. I've got Alana Vagianos, a HuffPost reporter who covers gender and politics. Hello, Alana. Hey, thanks for having me. No problem. And we've got Marina Fang, another HuffPost reporter who covers politics and culture. Hello, Marina. Hi. So for anyone coming to the podcast for the first time, this is what we're trying to do. I'm a British journalist living and working in America and HuffPost UK, we wanted to try and produce something that made sense of the US election. To do that, we've enlisted the help of some of my reporting colleagues from our American team. And this time around, we wanted to tackle I guess we call it sexism in US politics, kind of how prevalent it is, how powerful it is as a deterrent to, to people entering politics. Um, most people in the UK will know that the US has never had a female president. It hasn't had a female vice president. That might change in, in January. So I guess I wanted to ask first up just a broad question. Why has there been no uh, woman president, no female vice president? What are the barriers to, to women kind of entering politics or what are the barriers that women face in politics in the US? Um, Alana, do you want to have a go at that one first? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a pretty big question. I think um, it, it's it's ingrained in our culture from all the way down to um, parenting to up in the highest level of politics. So it, it's kind of a spectrum of 
um, misogyny and sexism that we see on every different level uh, within our culture, not just politically. But I think um, bringing it to where we're at right now, I think it says a lot about our political culture, that our two choices for president right now, Trump and Biden, have both been credibly accused of sexual assault. Right. Um, but the fact that these are our, our two options as president, especially in the wake of the 2016 election where we had the first uh, female presidential candidate, I think says a lot about where we are. Um, and I think it would deter any woman from, I think in some respect, it could deter women from running. Um, in some cases, it's actually galvanized women into running. And we've seen that in 2018. Um, but, you know, I don't know what I would do if I was uh, faced with that decision. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't want to put the UK in a, a kind of a exemplar category being superb in, in terms of, of women rising in politics. You know, we've had two female prime ministers, but, you know, the number of women in parliament is comparable to the number of women in Congress, which isn't very high. Um, so I think maybe most both countries have work to do. But Marina, what, what, why do you think there is there are barriers in the, in, in the US that maybe are unique to the US? Or what, why do you think generally um, we have a situation that we do now in, in this country? I think broadly, jumping off of what Alana said, um, and we'll get into 2016. Sure, in yeah, moment, absolutely. But something that came up so frequently in 2016 in you know public polling and focus groups and things like that was the fact that I think a lot of voters, um, or at least a significant amount of voters, still see um, the image of a political leader is still often a straight cis white man, right? Regardless of you know, how qualified or how experienced a female candidate might be. I mean, especially in the case of, of Hillary Clinton. And this, yeah, this came up constantly during 2016. It didn't matter how prepared she was or how much expertise she had. She was always subjected to a different standard than Donald Trump was. And this happens right. on on all levels in politics when there's a male candidate who's even underprepared, that's seen as an asset rather right. than a detriment in the case of, of a lot of people. Yeah. I, I think there was some research by the Barbara Lee Family Foundation that found that it's harder for female candidates to be rated as likable compared to men. And, you know, I think we see that kind of quite frequently in whenever there's a you know, there's been been public debates. Women are seen as uh, ambitious and aggressive when the, the, those would be seen as pejoratives. When those characteristics for men would be would would not be seen to be that to be that case. Um, do, do you think that's the case? Are our expectations different for women in power than they are are for men in the U.S.? Alana, do you think? A hundred percent. I think, as you said, you know, when a woman is being quote unquote aggressive. Um, in policy or, you know, on the floor of uh, Congress, um, she's seen as being pushy and quote unquote bitchy. Yeah. Uh, but when a man's being aggressive, obviously that's seen as a pillar of being a leader. Um, you know, he's uh, backing up his people. He's being uh, ardent about his policy making. So there's definitely a different standard and that can be overt sometimes and it can also seep in and be very subtle um, in our political culture. And 
women are often placed in this like basically can't win scenario because as Alana said when they're when they're being aggressive that's bad but also if they're showing emotion like if they cry in public that's also bad whereas a man when he does that he's seen as you know showing empathy or he cares so much and for women that's seen as a detriment so there's this hyper focus on a woman's emotions or a woman's appearance in in ways that are just not applied to men at all yeah and i think to move it to specifically to the us and i i kind of came to the us in in 2016 in the, in the middle of the election campaign and i think my perspective on hillary clinton was like she was a you know a, a broadly liked character you know that the, the opinion on her was was relatively benign and boy was i wrong and the opinion on hillary clinton was was far more negative than i than i'd realized from from afar and i think many people in the uk would would feel the same and um, marina you covered uh the 2016 campaign closely and this issue in in particular um how, how bad was the sexism clinton faced um four years ago uh, really bad, right. to put it quite bluntly. Yeah, I think you're right. All of the issues that we've described already, they just they they take on an even bigger significance because of her longevity in terms of being in the public eye. Um, and and of course, you know, she should be scrutinized because she's a public figure. I'm not saying that you shouldn't do that, but right. a lot of the ways that she's been scrutinized. Um, you know, has has been done in this very gendered way. I mean, from the very beginning, I think it, it all goes back to these factors we've described. There was so much emphasis on her appearance and her voice. And when she would yell, that was seen as negative. And I think it also seeps into people's attitudes about her in in these more kind of coded ways rather than some of these more overt overt criticisms alana what do you what do you recall of of how clinton was treated four years ago yeah i mean i think too like for for uk uh listeners i think it's important to note that um hillary clinton was a democrat but if you look at kind of the spectrum of republicans and democrats uh, she was f- very mainstream. She was right down the right. middle. Her um, primary opponent, Bernie Sanders, who I'm sure you've heard about, but if you haven't, I mean, he's very, very progressive, super, super left. Uh, some would say have has a very, very kind of off the spectrum um, uh, progressive thinking and policy. And while some people love that about him, some people didn't. Um, but I think it's very interesting that it wasn't even that her policies, Clinton's policies were very divisive. They weren't, especially for a Democrat. She was the most mainstream you could get. um, And yet she was treated uh, in a way that was much worse to some extent than than Sanders was in the media or by voters. Um, So I thought that was really interesting. I do think, too, it's really important to bring up the fact that she has been in, in political life for so long. Uh, Bill Clinton or her husband, who was the president, had such a divisive presidency and 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 resume um, to an extent. And I think it's really important to bring up something that I saw when Trump was accused real time in October, the month before he was elected president, of sexual misconduct, sexual assault. Um, 
was caught on tape from years prior bragging about sexually assaulting a woman, Hillary Clinton had to speak for her husband, Bill Clinton's actions, when he um, essentially did prey on Monica Lewinsky, the intern, um, in the late 90s. She was asked to speak about the actions of her husband more so than Trump was asked to speak for his alleged actions. So I think that actually was a really, really unfortunate display of the sexism and and, um, double standards that women, but especially Clinton, faced in 2016. And Trump's campaign was misogynistic. He called Clinton a nasty woman. And he's using the same phrase and worse when he's talking about Kamala Harris. So about Harris, is she an important figure in this discussion? Is she significant? I think it's hugely significant in that, you know, she's the first black woman to be on a major party presidential ticket. She's the first Asian woman, first woman of color, period, to be on a major party presidential ticket. I also think, um, thinking back to when she was running as a presidential candidate, what was really, I think, in some ways, a mark of progress was that she and the other female candidates in the race were not necessarily Certainly sexism and racism was there, and it unfortunately will always be there, but I think they were also able to talk about their policy differences and talk about the ways, um, you know, they've, they've governed as elected officials, their records, things like that really came up, I think, a lot more just because there were so many of them in the race. And hopefully that's a sign of, you know, things are at least incrementally changing. I wouldn't say that they have changed drastically. And um, hopefully the, the fact that she is the first will, will help make sure that, you know, other people who come up after her will not have to bear the weight of being the first. And, you know, the discourse around them will be much more about them as candidates rather than just, you know, who they are. Right on cue, Trump last week ramped up his attacks on Kamala Harris following her TV debate with Vice President Mike Pence. And this monster that was on stage with uh, Mike Pence, who destroyed her last night, by the way, but this monster, uh, she says, no, no, there won't be fracking, there won't be this, there won't... Everything she said is a lie. Yes, Trump has moved on from calling Harris nasty and is now describing her as a monster. You can't imagine him calling a white man a monster. In fact, his favourite insult for Joe Biden is to call him Sleepy Joe, which is barely an insult at all. And it's almost exactly four years since the Access Hollywood video emerged. That was the one where he suggested, when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Grab him by the pussy. Despite universal condemnation, even from senior Republicans, and 15 women coming forward to say Trump had sexually abused them, Trump still won the election in 2016. So no wonder he's done little to curb his language towards women in the last four years. For more on this, do read a piece written by our US colleagues, Elise Foley and Emma Gray, titled, When You're a Star, They Let You Do It. And uh, Alana, you wrote a really interesting piece on um, Kamala Harris's uh, f- fan club, the K Hive. C- can you explain the background to the to the piece and, w- and what what you were trying to get across with that? Sure. So um, Kamala Harris has this 
loosely organized group of fans on the internet, mostly on Twitter, um, self-dubbed the K-Hive. And from my report, I found that a lot of these, I will just say it first, similar to any online fan group. Um, Bernie Sanders had the Bernie Bros. You know, um, Ariana Grande has fans. Beyonce has the Bayhive. Like, any on it, this is more of a commentary on online fandom than I think Kamala as a political uh, as a politician, excuse me. But um, part of the fan club has veered into overt online harassment and even um, put certain people in physical danger who do not support Harris. So, of course, at the most extreme end of any fan club, you're going to have some bad faith actors, and that's what this story was about. And it was important, I believe, to call that behavior out and ensure that it doesn't continue to happen. But what I found interesting was that um, this uh, very toxic behavior coming from Kamala's fan club, it was a big disconnect from Harris as a politician because she's very warm and wonderful and, you know, intelligent, but there was no connection there. And I, I found it interesting in my report that we found that a lot of these fans of hers started this fan group in order to defend her from this onslaught of racism and misogyny that she faced first in the primary when she was running for president and now um, as the VP choice on the Democratic ticket. Right, right. Do you, do you, do you think uh, female politicians in the, in the US have a unique problem with with online harassment and and misogyny is that something that happens more do you think than than to male politicians lana a hundred percent i mean i think marina can probably speak to this too but the back in 2016 hillary clinton supporters were harassed so much on the internet online whether it's facebook or twitter instagram that they actually created their own private facebook group called pantsuit nation to share and like certain things that they liked about hillary because they weren't actually safe to do it on the regular internet. So they had to create a a closed safe space um, on Facebook in order to do that. Yeah. Online culture for sure has exposed so much of the sexism that we're, we're talking about. Does the male dominance of politics have an impact on the legislation and laws that are brought forward in the US? The possible rolling back of abortion rights as a result of the changing balance the Supreme Court might be one that people in the UK are aware of. Yeah, I definitely. I Abortion is a good example. I think sexual misconduct is another example where I think part of why legislation, for example, in Congress has not moved very much is because both chambers are primarily dominated by men, although there are a lot more women in Congress now. Um, and in fact, many of those women have been the ones to kind of take charge and, and lead the fight on, on making sure that sexual harassers are held accountable, especially in the wake of the Me Too movement. A lot of the people who really led the legislation were women. I mean, Donald Trump is the perfect example of we see men enable people's behavior. We see men, you know, look the other way. And I think that right. really extends to the highest levels in in politics when men don't necessarily see combating sexual misconduct as a big issue worthy of trying to push legislation forward on. As Marina said, I mean, just to point to a few examples, I mean, we don't have universal child care uh, in this country. Um, 
mostly because the people in power are men who do not have childcare responsibilities. Um, I mean, the Violence Against Women Act just expired for the first time. That's kind of right. a historic issue. And it's there's been so much news, but it's just kind of been brushed under the rug. Yeah. And we could have touched on this at the very beginning, but um, the underlining everything that we're talking about seems to be t- two white men in their 70s debating um, this time last week. How did that kind of make both of you feel in terms of the, the future for, the, for kind of American politics? Marina, do you want to have a go at that first? Yeah, um, we mentioned this at the top. It's telling that, you know, we've ended up, we had the most diverse democratic field ever in history. And we ended up with Biden to, I think, a lot of people's disappointment. And I think that was an indication that many democratic primary voters still saw that the best person they felt who could defeat Trump was another straight cis white man. Right. In terms of the debate, yeah, I think it was just, uh, obviously Trump did most of the yelling and the interrupting, but it, it was telling that a lot of the sort of tactics that we saw from Biden to respond to him were also kind of these manifestations of, of toxic masculinity in a lot of ways. And throughout this campaign, we've seen Biden say like, you know, I'm going to beat up Trump or... Right. You know, use all these very masculine analogies to sort of prove that he's tough and, and and toughness is such a huge theme in politics. You have to show toughness and, you know, all of these other words and traits that are usually associated with with men. Alana, how did you feel watching the debate? I just keep coming back to that meme that is like a woman looking tired and like it says like <laughs> men yelling indistinctly. Like, oh, yeah, I just... I'm tired. I'm exhausted. I think it comes down to the root of the issue. And I think this is true in American politics and it's probably true elsewhere. But, you know, identity politics can become really tiresome. But it's true in a sense that your identity helps you perceive the world in a certain way and you have a certain experience because of the identities that you hold. And if we have two two old white dudes who, you know, maybe are on different ends of the spectrum politically – but their experiences are probably pretty similar, and that's going to inform their policies, and that's going to inform who they prioritize uh, within their policies. So I'm just really tired of not having new, fresh perspectives, whether that's younger people, um, people of different genders, gender queer people, people of different race and ethnicities, people of different religions. Um, I think it's it's just I'm tired. Yes, <laughs> I think we I think we all echo that one. Yeah, I'm very tired <laughs> for sure. That meme is from Mad Max Fury Road, by the way. Yes, thank you. Yeah, right. Okay, but yeah, I think about that constantly during not just debates, but like congressional hearings, anytime when there's just like a whole like sea of men talking because that right. happens a lot. It's an evergreen issue. Yes. yes, right. It seems to sum it up that the only way to defeat an old uh, white guy is to put an old white guy up against him because. Trump has nothing to attack him on. Like, he can't use racism. He can't use misogyny. And those were the, those were the two of the main prongs of his, of his rise in American politics. So that, that it's, as tiresome as it is, it seems to sum up exactly kind of where we, exactly where we are in American politics. And I think it shows, too, it's 
I mean, the day that Biden announced Harris as his VP pick, the onslaught of misogyny and racist attacks that Harris received from birtherism claims saying that she's not a real American to um, saying that, you know, she's really aggressive because, you know, of her policies, even though at the end of the day, Biden and Harris are both very middle of the road Democrats, very mainstream. So he can't use it on Biden. Trump and Pence can't use it on Biden, but they have already started on Harris. Immediately when they announced it, it was like, you know, everyone just kind of went, you know, they just went for it. (laughs) And I wish I were more surprised, to be honest. We'll come back to Alana and Marina in a bit, but I've also spoken to Daniel Marins, another HuffPost political reporter, about last week's vice presidential debate between Kamala Harris and Mike Pence. It was certainly a more normal political event than we've been used to in recent weeks, and it was interesting to see how Pence attempted to put a professional politician's gloss over the Trump administration's failings. Oh yeah, and there was the fly. So you watched the debate, Daniel, and you wrote a piece on HuffPost last night that was called Mike Pence tried to defend an administration that doesn't exist. What was the what were the points you were trying to make in that piece? Uh, you know, the point of that piece was just that when you're dealing with a crisis situation and such a, a cascade of policy failures like the Trump administration, there seemed to be essentially two ways to go about it. And we saw one way in how Donald Trump tried to handle Joe Biden, which is to sort of scream and yell and interrupt and essentially just sabotage the debate. And another way is to pretend that your administration has done other things entirely, that it's it's been a, a responsible, mature hand at the wheel in terms of managing these crises that it has fought for ordinary workers, that it has uh, presided over as smooth a a handling of of this pandemic and the uh, sort of accompanying economic fallout as possible. And so when we say he defended an administration that doesn't exist, he chose to defend a, a fictitious administration, which is really, when you think about it, uh, maybe maybe a superior option to the way that Donald Trump handled it, though not a whole lot of good options all around here. Right, right. It, it, people, the, the kind of commentary class afterwards was saying is, oh, this is kind of what normal politics was like, you know, de- de- defending kind of terrible things and outrageous things, but doing it with like a veneer of civility and professionalism and kind of knowing when to deflect and pivot when you're in a difficult situation rather than what Trump would do, which would be to, I mean, do do anything, do anything but that. So what was the most outrageous thing that Pence said during the debate? You know, one thing obviously I honed in on was this discussion of the swine flu. And right. basically Mike Pence pivoting away from his own administration's performance in containing the coronavirus to a discussion of how the Obama administration handled what is now really a pretty distant memory uh, for most Americans, and that's the H1N1 virus, uh, a, a, a flu that was transmitted through through uh, livestock. Right. Pence called this a major failure on the part of the Obama administration. 
He said that, you know, the Obama administration was completely unprepared for this. They just lucked out because it turned out to be less lethal. But the bottom line, as Pence himself conceded, is that at the end of the day, this was a virus that ended up killing fewer than 13,000 people. Yeah. And when when we think about the fact that the pandemic so far in the United States has killed more than 211,000 people, that the entire economy and our, our culture and way of life has transformed to accommodate this disease. And there was just absolutely nothing like that right. in response to the swine flu. Now, the, you know, there's an interesting article in Politico about exactly how well the Obama administration handled it. Prior to Biden's presidential run, Ron Klain said that they really had no idea what they were doing and they did, in fact, just luck out with the lethality. I, I suspect that that's what Pence was referencing, yeah. that quote. But, the, but you know, there was really nothing like the Trump administration's mixed signals, attempts to undermine credible, impartial public health authorities. In yeah. fact, one of the Obama administration's go-to mantras at that time was put Tony Fauci on TV. And if you right. could think of a more marked contrast with the Trump administration, which has constantly been bickering with Fauci, uh, that would be it. Yeah, it was it was an outrageous comparison, and to think that that would kind of resonate with with people is is, is a very very strange attack, and I, I guess it also underlines kind of the lack of a, a lack of areas where they can attack. The, the handling of this has been so bad that that they, they've got nothing to kind of respond to the opposition on. But moving away from Pence's performance, how did you think Kamala Harris came over? She seemed to me to be. A lot more on the defensive. She was reluctant to attack Pence. Do you think? Do you think that was right? How did you view her? Well, I think the the conventional wisdom is that when you are on top in the polls, particularly by the kinds of margins that we're seeing right now, in terms of the Biden Harris tickets lead over the Trump Pence ticket, the idea is to do as little as possible to disrupt right. that momentum one way or another. That means you avoid engaging in the kinds of attacks that might expose you to any kind of a risk or, or change in the fundamental dynamics of the race. And I think that also meant that this debate just had much higher stakes for Pence. Right. He's basically trying to clean up on, on three fronts. I mean, he, he is trying to overall arrest the, the slide in polling that has opened up uh, between the Democratic ticket and the Trump-Pence ticket. He is trying to clean up Trump's just objectively disastrous debate performance uh, the previous week. And of course, he's trying to deflect public attention from Trump himself contracting the virus and spreading it to so many members of his inner circle. So it made much more sense for Pence to be essentially engaging in a kind of kitchen sink strategy of trying every potential line of attack and seeing what sticks. Yeah. And we also saw her doing some of the pivoting away. She was asked about how she would take over in the event that Biden had health problems that would disable him from the presidency. And she just turned it into a unrelated yarn about how honored she was for, for Biden to pick her and yeah. how much her, her mother, uh, an Indian immigrant, would have been so proud of her. Um, up in heaven. And of course, that gave Pence an opportunity to say that he appreciated the historic nature of her candidacy as well. 
Do you, do you think um, Harris in her performance was was kind of conscious of the fact that she's a woman in a high-profile debate situation and there are um, expectations and, and baggage that, that, that kind of comes with that? The, the idea sometimes that women look aggressive um, when they're attacking another politician and the same connotation wouldn't affect a male politician. I, I felt like she was holding back on occasion because she was conscious of how it might look if she was too on the front foot. I think I think you're right. I think that she was conscious of that. I think that she tried to strike a, a sunny tone and, and avoid being overly argumentative. But I think that that would have been much more striking if she were up against somebody less polite than Mike Pence. I did notice that that on a, on a couple of occasions she would say, excuse me, I'm speaking, to sort of hold her ground. And I know that certainly a lot of liberal partisans appreciated that. They saw that as a moment for championing women's rights. So, you know, she, she struck that balance. But I think that if we had seen her up against a, a really aggressive, nasty, male opponent like Donald Trump. Yeah. The the contrast there in the way in the standards that that men and women are held to would would be that much more striking. Yeah. Well, I think I think Harris won Twitter last night. I think that was you <laughs> can definitely say that and the 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 clip um Mr. President I'm speaking was certainly the one that seemed to excite everybody. $400,000 a year. appeal the Trump tax cuts. Uh, Mr. Vice President, I'm speaking. Well, wait, wait. I'm speaking. It'd be important if you said the truth. If you don't mind letting me finish, we can Please. then have a conversation, okay? Please. Okay. And speaking of Twitter and what excites social media, we've got this far in the conversation, Daniel, and we haven't mentioned the fly on Mike Pence's head. Do you, is it, I mean, you're, you're, a, you're a serious political journalist, so I, I, right. I guess this is, this is beneath you to be talking about such minor things as, as insects crawling all over the vice, the vice president. Would the fly be the only thing anyone remembers from this debate next week? Never mind next next year. It's certainly up there. Yeah, I, I think that the debate overall it will largely be forgotten. And again, I think that is very much to the advantage of the Biden Harris ticket. They did not need this debate to change the fundamentals of the race for them because the fundamentals of the race are already strongly in their favor. Yeah, it's it's just one of those those moments, right, that people will remember and whether or not uh, the vice president noticed that there was a fly on his hair as he was answering a question about racism and policing in the country is, uh, I think, still a matter of, of, of some debate. But things like that happen. Yeah. And, you know, in some ways, uh, maybe Pence ignoring it was the right move. I, I don't know. Uh, I mean, if, if you swatted it away and it returns, then you would look weak. Yes, <laughs> so. that's absolutely. But by not doing anything, he looked stoic and <laughs> right. um, and like a leader. Yeah, maybe that's the maybe that's the take. This is from the it. you know uh, anthropod punditry that that the world didn't ask for, but maybe that the world needed. Yeah, the anthropod cast. Let's call it that. Oh, there you go, Daniel. Thanks very much. It's my pleasure, Graham. Wonderful chatting and, and good luck to everybody over there. So in the last bit of the show, guys, I wanted to um, help our listeners in the UK with a bit of a cheat sheet, some um, responses they can use, um, palm off your knowledge 
as their own to their friends in the pub when talking about American politics. So I'm going to throw a few questions at you and kind of first thing that comes to your head, I'm sure will be brilliant. So um, and let's try and keep it. Let's try and keep it positive. So we talked about a lot of the negative things in American politics, but who are the most exciting women in US politics right now that people should be aware of? Um, I think people will be familiar with AOC. So I'm going to say you can't say her. Who excites you as, as a female politician? Alana, do you want to have a go at that first? The person that really excites me right now is uh, Ayanna Presley. She's a congresswoman um, from Massachusetts, and she's a younger black woman. Her policies are very progressive. She's actually supported policies to legalize sex work. So she's she's pushing forward, and I'm excited about her. Okay. Marina? Um, Stacey Abrams, I think. Okay. Maybe some UK listeners might have heard of her. She ran for governor in 2018, very narrowly lost to... Brian Kemp under some many, many shady things that we don't have time to get into. Abrams, a black woman, lost to Brian Kemp, the sitting governor of Georgia, by 1.4%, or about 55,000 votes. Democrats have accused Republicans of engaging in efforts to deny people their right to vote, largely because Kemp, in a highly unusual move, refused to step back from his role in overseeing the election. Kemp's alleged attempts at voter suppression were even said by some Democrats to be racially motivated. Kemp oversaw an aggressive effort to purge voters before the election, with 700,000 or 10% removed from the rolls in the year before the election. He also placed 53,000 vote registrations in electoral limbo, with the Associated Press estimating that 70% were black voters. Whether these and other factors would have tipped the balance in Abrams' favour is debatable. The turnout was incredibly high, largely because of Abrams' efforts. But it's another example of how US politics operates in ways largely unfamiliar in the UK. Since then, she's been really focused on voter suppression in Georgia and making sure that you know people uh, can vote. And, and really has kind of taken that on as, as like her single issue. Uh, there was some speculation that Joe Biden was considering her as a VP, potential right. VP nominee. And there were rumors that, you know, maybe she's mulling some other races. Um, but for now, she's been really focused on just preserving people's rights to vote. And, and I think that's really admirable. And I think it's a good reminder that it's not just about running for office. It's also about making sure you're focused on whether it's voting rights or any other issues. I think often politicians are really focused on, you know, what's the next electoral opportunity, but there are so many other ways where they can make an impact. Have we heard of the first female president is is there somebody in American politics now that you think will be will be the first, Marina? Ooh. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. I really don't know. I think I think Trump has. I mean, certainly a lot of the factors that led to Trump's rise existed before him, but he made everything a lot worse. And I think it's going to take a lot of years to repair the political damage that he's done. 
and I and I wonder. I I hope I'm cautiously optimistic that that won't set back the prospects of a female president. Certainly, his rise and his presidency have galvanized a lot of women to get involved in politics a lot more. I mean, they were already, of course, but so many more women have started to run for office since he took office. But the cynic in me worries that it'll take a long time, especially to to get to, you know, the the level of the presidency. Right. Alana, do you think, is there anyone around at the moment will be, I mean... Could be could be Kamala in twenty twenty four, perhaps. Yeah, I'm gonna go on record saying I think we're gonna get a president who's a woman in the next few administrations. <laughs> uh, I do believe few. that. Okay. Yeah, few. You know, four, eight years. Right. Sixteen okay. years. All right. Good. But I thank really do. For, yeah. Thank you for countering my my cynicism. Yeah. Well, you know what? We're we're cynics by nature, by by our right. job. So. I do really believe that this past presidential primary was by far the most diverse group of candidates we've seen. So I do think that we're going to we're going to see someone soon. I think that certainly there are more women coming up on all levels. But I think the presidency is still such a huge, huge, you know, it's the the proverbial glass ceiling that is going to be really hard to crack. Right. And to be fair, I think we're all just a little shell-shocked still from 2016. So Yes. <laughs> do you think that still reverberates, you think, the, 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 the abuse Clinton faced? Oh, for sure. Right. 100%. And one final one. Do you think we will know the, the result of the election on November the 3rd? Or is this thing going to be dragged out over many weeks, maybe even longer? Marina, you're, you're, you're shaking your head. No, definitely not. I'm already prepared for a very drawn out process. He has made it very clear that he thinks some fishy things are going to happen with potential voter fraud. We should be very clear that voter fraud rarely happens. And if it does, it's not on the wide scale that he talks about all the time. And I think whatever happens, he'll probably try to contest the election in any way he can. Right. Alana, do you think we'll wrap this thing up and put a bow on it by November the 3rd and we can all move on with our lives? Knowing how 2020 has gone so far, I feel like, no. sadly for all of the political journalists, uh, we're all fucked. I'm not sure <laughs> if I can say that. Yeah, it's fine. It's a, uh, it's a, it's, <laughs> a late night edition of, of, the, of the podcast. Yeah. yeah. Well... That's just about everything. Thanks for joining me, Alana, Marina and Daniel. And thanks everyone for listening. And I hope American politics makes a bit more sense. The political landscape in the US makes it incredibly difficult for female politicians to advance. And that's not helped by a president who has made sexism the cornerstone of his politics. But there's a new generation of powerful women in Congress and state-level politics. Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, Ilhan Omar, Stacey Abrams, among others, that suggest the future could be brighter than it seems right now. Please do subscribe now for more episodes and make sure you check out our other podcasts, including Commons People, our weekly look at UK politics, which are available in all the usual places. Thanks very much and speak to you again.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.